Bruce Arena after a U.S. game one time came and sat next to me on the bus on the way uh, back to the hotel. And I remember it so well, him turning to me and, and sort of quietly whispering, don't become Clint Mathis. And I was like, what is, what's he talking about? Clint's the man. I mean, this guy's, this guy's incredible. To the Coffee and Football Podcast. I'm Sebastian Alvarado, and I'm the host of this show where I sit down for a coffee with some of the most interesting and influential profiles in the game. Today's guest is Kyle Martino. He's a former professional and U.S. national team player who probably is even more well-known in his current role as a Premier League studio analyst than he was during his playing career. We see him almost every weekend on NBC Sports together with Rebecca Lowe and one of the two Robbies former Premier League players Robbie Musto and Robbie Earl. We go in-depth on the studio job, the behind-the-scenes and the amount of preparation that goes into it, what it's like to be the only American on the show. We get in on his playing career that ended at 28 years old due to injuries, the post-career type depression he experienced that led him to leave the game and take a job on Wall Street. We also touch on what it's like to be a team owner. Together with his friends Steve Nash and Stu Holden, he owns Real Mallorca of the Spanish Second Division. All that and much more in this episode. So without further ado, let's get into it. Kyle, welcome to Coffee and Football. Yeah, thanks, man. We already had our coffee, too. It literally is Coffee and Football. It really is, <laughs> but I didn't see what kind of coffee you had. What do you, what do you typically have? I, I did the, I'm, I'm trying to find my lane here. I wasn't a coffee drinker before I had a child and my, my two-year-old daughter, Marlo, right when she came into the world, so too did my coffee drinking. And I, I have yet to land on a favorite. Right now I'm drinking French roast and it's all right. It's okay. But I think it's more for, for the caffeine vehicle than the, the actual taste. All right. So you thought it'd be a little... A little solution to your sleeping degree. It's a major solution to my <laughs> sleeping issues. How are things today? Everything's good. I just, you know, kind of funny enough, uh, after just getting done talking about my daughter, Marlo, I just had my son major. Um, well, I didn't. My wife did. She did all the work. But um, yeah, he's, he's just over two weeks old. And, and that's when, um, you know, this this podcast and this conversation comes at a very interesting crossroad in my life and and it's very apropos to to reflect on things because in my life never felt so I would say just different from how you expected the path to feel like when you grew up I mean nothing feels more grown up than changing diapers waking up going to work and 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 having a house full of kids and um you know, it's been uh, it's been a really remarkable, amazing journey to get to this point. But it, it it is a state of serious reflection when you when you look at others. I think for the first time in your life, not to sound like a narcissist, but the reality is when you have kids, you love something much more than you love yourself, right. and um, that is a a very fine tool of uh, of understanding who you are in those moments when you no longer are looking as much inward. You're 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 more getting inside yourself and looking out to see what your life has become. And uh, I'm very lucky that it's that it's on the path that it's on right now. Fortunately, I've got an amazing partner and my wife, Eva, and we commiserate and celebrate at the same time this incredible joy and exhausting journey of, of being a parent. Well, first, obviously, congrats. Thank on, you. On the newborn. 
Are you both on maternal and paternal leave? Yeah, I mean, when you when you're in the sports world and in the television world, uh, you know, paternity leave doesn't last very long. You know, the, the the Premier League sort of waits for no man. But my bosses have been incredible and understanding, and and I'm lucky that I've got the Robbies as well. That we already have a natural rotation where they've given me a little bit of a break to be at home in this moment and really really enjoy uh, my son and and be able to spend a lot of time with the family before I get back into the other children of of the the insanity of the Jose Mourinho's and 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 that whole world it's it's a, it's not necessarily diaper changing but it is it is crazy and hectic all the same and you recently moved from the west coast you were actually commuting from LA yeah. to Connecticut on a weekly basis how has the uh, move been for you you know it's been really good we moved we were i was traveling back and forth from LA which you know it we loved where we were and I went to LA initially because I was working for Fox and, and it was right down the road. And when Premier League came along, it was after I was already working for NBC and was traveling a lot, but I was working in-game commentary for Major League Soccer and traveling all around the country. And when, you know, you're doing that sort of job, you're always going to be traveling. So it doesn't kind of, kind of, it doesn't matter where you live. You can live wherever you want. But now that I had a very stable and the repetition of always going back to Stanford and being a studio guy, it, it really gave us the decision of, um, you know, do, do we change our life? Do we move over there and make it easier? Because the commute, although there are great aspects of it that, you know, that that's six uninterrupted hours on a plane that I'm just able to crush work, just reading articles, watching games. And it's probably the most efficient I can possibly be because because no one's there to, to interrupt you there. But that's cutting out what's the most important thing in my life, which is family. And I was in the backyard with my daughter Marla one time and the plane flew over and she looked up and pointed at it and said, Dada. And I think that was really the moment I was like, I got to stop this. This wow. is this is not the um, this is not the life I, I want for myself, but much more importantly, I don't want for my kids that, that their dad's constantly traveling. And it was the way I grew up. My dad was always on a plane and always traveling around. And, um, and it, it definitely had an impact on me. And uh, uh, that was when my wife and I sat down and decided to come back where I grew up in Westport, Connecticut, which is right down the road from Stanford, to move back to this area. And it's been great. You know, obviously we miss LA. We miss certain aspects of our life that we had built there over the last decade. But um, the, the trading a six-hour door-to-door commute, and well, even more than that, it's trading probably a 10-hour door-to-door commute for a 35-minute door-to-door commute definitely improves the quality of life. What does your wife do? She was an actress for a long time and um, has recently started a lifestyle blog. And the genesis of it was that she's an Ivy League grad who is incredibly intelligent and has different interests that weren't, she didn't feel she was utilizing her, her intellectual capabilities, but also a lot of her passion in the world of acting. It's something that her parents did and something that she sort of just found herself doing and fell into. And it was the natural path to get on when it was something that was around the house for her growing up. But um, she started writing a little bit just just to sort of scratch an itch and um, realized not only that she had a talent for it and had a following that responded to her, her writing and her aesthetic, but that it could be a business, that it could be something that, that, that she could build. And when she made the decision to leave acting and poured herself full time into that, she's just really grown so much. I mean, there's so many aspects of her life that have changed recently, becoming a, a wife, becoming a parent. But it was when she really took ownership of her career. And instead of waiting for opportunities to be told she could go act, she has taken the initiative and the risk of of creating this business by herself. And, and she really just, just wows me every day with what she's doing and, and how she's connecting to people. 
Um, take me through a typical day. I guess there aren't all that many typical days in your life. <laughs> yeah. But maybe we can start with kind of what kinds of morning routines do you have? So what time do you get up? Yeah. Uh, what types of readings do you have? And, and then from there on. So the morning routine has changed a lot recently due to having a newborn in the house. But but a typical morning routine is is waking up around you know six forty five seven with with my daughter Marlo going in and, and picking her up from bed, which is definitely outside of the coffee we talked about one of the, one of the best most just just the perfect start to the day that you get to see what you're doing it all for immediately and and to see the positivity she wakes up with that that sort of innocence that a child wakes up you know dreams still lingering and ready to uh you know to 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 start a day and and not sort of bogged down with all the other noise that we tend to let accumulate in our in our heads and in our souls i get to start with her come down and have breakfast and just laugh a little bit as as the house sort of wakes up and and everyone you know gets ready for their day and then uh, take my daughter to school you know drive five minutes down the road to take her to this great place that um she she has all these friends and just just runs it right right from the start of course she's she's very much her mother and the fact that you know she arrives and immediately starts organizing the joint and then come back home and kind of get my my work day started. I've got a, a great office set up here at the house that was one of the necessities of not having that plane ride anymore was to have a little nook to to tuck myself away and be able to um you know to really get down to the things that I want to accomplish during the day and and it involves I throughout the day when I don't have the time and uh, am either with my my family or my daughter and not trying to detach and separate myself I'll email, email myself articles and all these things that I need to get to and that'll be my time during the day that I sit down and go through my inbox and you know read the guardian read the mirror read the daily mail read ESPN read Fox and NBC and all the different sites that that have great writers um football writers that are writing about reflecting on the past games or, or anticipating the weekend games. And I'll just use that and curate this, you know, this thread of what's important right now in soccer, what's important in the Premier League, what should I be paying attention to, and what do people think about what's going on right now, and, and help that either continue to evolve my idea of this past weekend or help me create my counter argument if I don't, if I don't agree with it. And so it's very valuable, I think, to, um, you know, to accumulate this and, and this modern day with social media and blogs and podcasts, you know, it's really endless and it's so helpful to have so many different voices and so many different ideas on one subject. But I'll, I'll try to gauge the temperature out there on what's important and what people think about it. And then I'll go to game watching and see how those theories play out and either past game scenarios or, you know, try to try to really think through what I anticipate being the strategies of the weekend. And then, you know, come to a to a Friday night and you've really done all your work and you're ready to go. You studied for the test and um, Saturday mornings end up being super early. I'm up at sometimes 3 a.m., you know, get upstairs, you know, tiptoe out of the bedroom so I don't wake anyone up, come, come downstairs to actually we're still working through this routine. We don't have it as good as we did in L.A. where I was not there to wake the entire house up. But um, get out of the house drive probably get to the studio anywhere between four and and five a.m and then start sitting down with one of the robbies and rebecca in the makeup room and that's one of the most fun parts of the day is you know we're exhausted we're sitting there we all look like crap and we're waiting for them to actually make us look like we're not zombies that just woke up at 3 a.m but that's when we have our you know sort of water cooler talk and that's when i compare my notes of what i've thought is important and what i've heard and the opinions i've formulated and bounce them off of the other guys on 
on our team. And, um, you know, even though Rebecca's the host, she's very important in that process as well because she's got very good opinions and, and a great eye for the game. And she joins us in helping to sort of not only articulate the thoughts and ideas we have, but try and fit them into an opening chat that's very small. I mean, that, that ends up being the difficult part of our job is we'd love to be able to talk all day. I mean, a, a format like this, as you can see, I can talk all day, right. but a format like this <laughs> affords you the opportunity to really, ex- you know, expound on ideas, thoughts, and, and be able to drill a little bit deeper. But we have, you know, 50 things we want to talk about. Each of those things could take 10 minutes each, but we have one, you know, three or four or five minute window at the beginning of the show to talk about what's important. So it's hard to really to condense it into a very concise idea of what you find important and what's interesting in the Premier League coming into that weekend. But that first makeup room conversation is our attempt to uh, to do so. And it's all uh, very kind of soccer focused immediately there. Or you no, know, there's we, we kind of. I, it's funny. We've never really. It's not like we came up with a format of how to chat. It's very. It's very conversational and, and very uh, spontaneous. But we do have life chat first. You know, it's sort of current events, whether it be you know this election and all the craziness of that, or Brexit was was one thing we were talking about, or it's just you know kids and and you know someone's got a cold, or yeah, it's golf, it's it's fashion, it really can be anything nothing's off limits there so we kind of check back in with each other and and have that chat and then rebecca's normally the one that transitions it to okay opening chat what are we going to talk about so um yeah we don't just we don't just dive right in there's a little bit of foreplay in all that content that you consume you know between twitter and, and the articles that you read and and the games that you watch what's the balance kind of between what you just gather and kind of curate based on other sources mm-hmm. versus what your own opinions are yeah i would say that it's all my opinion it's whether or not i agree with other opinions or i don't and so typically with the amount of content and the amount of analysis. I mean, sort of everyone has has this job, whether it's you're getting paid for it or not. Everyone with a Twitter account or a Facebook account or a blog or podcast or whatever they're doing, everyone's formulating an opinion on the weekend. And typically we're all talking about the same thing. So uh, what I like to do is not formulate my opinion in a vacuum. I have my thoughts after I've watched the weekend's games, and then it tends to coincide with at least subject-wise what other people thought was important from the weekend. And then I think it's really important to have a gauge of what fans, what other pundits, what other players, what other coaches think about those certain issues and and topics coming from the past weekend, and then really join the conversation and put my two cents in. And my two cents may be, I completely agree with what this person said, or it might be, I completely disagree with what this person said. But more often than not, it's, you know, the the subject is, is Jurgen Klopp doing a good job at Liverpool? I say yes, and this is why. And um, yeah, so I, I think it's incredibly valuable to make sure that you are as knowledgeable as possible, not only on the subject matter, which your playing career helps shape some of that opinion, but but also, you know, you don't have to have been a professional soccer player to have an opinion or have even played the game to have an opinion, a right. good a good opinion. So the next part is is what did I see and, and what are my observations of it? And then lastly, I think it is really important to have a feel for the temperature out there. For instance, if my thought is, you know, Jurgen Klopp's doing a bad job, 
I need to be aware that that is a minority opinion and, and understand that I have to really have a strong, you know, example and strong backup for that opinion because I, I need to, uh, in my job, be aware of where opinions fall and is what I see important, not important to others and, and, and things like that. Because I think people don't want to be talked to. They want to feel like they're in the conversation. So that's how I, I think a lot of us try to make our analysis more conversational rather than, you know, sort of talking at people that don't have opinions. Of course, they have opinions. Do you have any mentors or any coaching help who uh, offers you kind of a POV on your work and who keeps you on track and helps you evolve in your role? Um, you know, we do a lot of review with the Premier League. There's actually, I wasn't on this past weekend, so I'm not on the call, but there's a call going on right now that has our entire production team and fans don't get this view, but we do, you realize that it's not luck that we're covering the game in a way that's so appreciated by a fan base. It's because there's so much going into it. I mean, there, there's a research team. There's an edit team behind the scenes. There are producers. There's 40 or 50 people behind, you know, the Robbies, Rebecca and I that are helping make this such a professional and engaging broadcast. And so, you know, that helps a lot. And, and every week it's sort of a different person, a producer, an editor. I like that all the the guy leading things, there's a few of them, but Sam Flood, Pierre Musa, um, Adam Littlefield, th these guys are making sure that we're constantly trying to improve ourselves. And this call where we talk about some of the good things about the broadcast on the weekend, but also point out some of the mistakes and things that we can do better is really helpful in trying to constantly keep us on our toes. Outside of that, I would say a mentor of mine when I started, and even though I'm doing a completely different thing than, than he's doing, was one of the first co-com guys I worked with was JP Delacamera, who's been in the business forever and just was such a comforting presence when I first started out, had no idea what I was doing and, and was probably terrible. And he, he was there to lean on in those moments, but also was just really helpful in trying to, as a new analyst, give me a few things to think about, just, just a few things to focus on to try and, and improve myself. And um, I definitely give him a lot of credit for uh, helping me come along in this and, and, and create a career for myself. And, you know, now we just sort of check in with each other as, as good old buddies. It doesn't really have that sort of, you know, mentor-mentee feeling anymore. What do you do in your role better than anybody else? What's that one thing that you're kind of uniquely qualified to do? That's a good question. I hate, Feel hate free to bragging brag. about myself. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I would say that... Uh, I, I would say that what, what's a bit unusual is someone that works as hard as I do in, in this. And, I, you know, I, I don't mean to uh, to say that others aren't. Of course they are. But I, I really just like try to lose myself in this thing and, and, you know, study for a thousand question multiple choice test when it's only going to be five questions and I've really obsessed about it like I did my playing career and, and all the time I spent training and working on things. So that that work ethic you know, it, it used to be a bit unusual and is becoming more the status quo as the soccer audience becomes so knowledgeable and can can really pick out someone that isn't doing the homework and isn't watching the games and, and brushing up on everything. You know, I, th I think one thing that I, I would say I do well that, that I always focus on because I can always do better at this that is unusual because people want to be liked and it's difficult to have a very strong opinion and also be liked. 
So what I try to do is just really be definitive. I try to, I try to not sit on the fence a lot of times, which was hard because I started this career at a young age because I had a career ending injury. So I was talking about players that were still friends of mine that that I still saw on a regular basis. And I had to have very critical and clear, concise analysis on, on games that was difficult when you were talking about a buddy or a coach that that's a friend of yours or something like that. So very early on, I got thick skin about, you know, not everyone's going to like me, but I think it's important to the job we, the job we have, it's important to, to have a position to put yourself out there and say what you think, whether it's on penalty calls or whether it's on, you know, coaches doing a good job or whether it's about players and how they're performing. I mean, you have to really be strong. And, um, you know, a lot of times that that's opened me up for a serious amount of criticism, especially being the only American on the Premier League coverage. But, um, you know, chasing away that insecurity that still exists in me. There, there's st- I still have the desire to be liked and, and still, you know, worry whether or not I'm in the majority in that opinion. But those two feelings are detrimental to, I think, strong analysis and strong commentary because you really have to not let likability and desire for your opinion to be in the majority to motivate your analysis and guide your analysis. I mean, it it is a really hard skill to learn and to quiet the ego, but the more I've done this and the more confident I've, I've become and I deserve this job, I've worked really hard for it and I'm good at it, it's made it easier to have these opinions that either open you up to being disliked or open you up to to being discredited. I mean, those are, those are those are two things that analysts want to avoid. That um, I would say my commentary, as it's improved, has improved because I'm I'm less conscious of those two things. Have you ever had an encounter with a former teammate or coach who's oh, been yeah. really pissed? Uh, yeah, Give yeah, me yeah. an example. <laughs> Um, so I remember that I was doing a U.S. game and a good friend of mine to this day. And, and, you know, the, 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 it's just like when you fight with guys on, on the practice field, <clears throat> and his it's name is Carlos Bocanegra. Yeah. So, um, he, uh, he came up to me afterwards. I'd met the guys out for drinks as I, as I would after the games, I still kind of was, um, even though the, the commentator for the night still felt like I was one of the guys in the locker room and he came up to me and, and was really visibly. And, uh, I didn't have to read between the lines, you know, noticeably upset with some of the things that I had said during the broadcast that, um, he, he disagreed with and we sort of had it out there. And, um, you know, that was my first test and standing up for what I believed in and, making sure that that I was okay with with this reality this was this was going to be the life I chose which is you were going to not artificially I'm not the guy that's creating controversy because it gets my name out there or you know moves the needle and gets you hits on these social media platforms but I wanted to be a guy who was respected for calling it like it is and saying it like I saw it and that night actually helped me a lot because the conversation ended that way where he gave me a compliment in his criticism of me even though he disagreed with me he He said, you know, I I give you a lot of credit for coming out and saying that. And, um, you know, a lot of times you'll do that and you were wrong and you you end up having the wrong view of things. But it can't keep you from either those run-ins or, you know, coming up on the wrong end of a a prediction that you have and you feel strongly about. Uh, It can't keep you from going out there and putting yourself out there like that. I'd like to shift gears uh, a little bit. I want to ask about your background. Yeah. How was your upbringing? It was, um, it was loud. Yeah. We had a big Italian household. So I've got three older brothers and one younger sister. So tell, tell me about the Italian background just. Yeah. 
Um, well, my dad's side of the family came over from Italy, uh, his, his grandfather, Arcangelo, and um, everyone ended up in Providence. And it was sort of that, that quintessential uh, Italian-American backyard bocce and the wife beater is getting your hair cut on the porch by Uncle Louie sort of existence. And then my mom was just the complete other end, sort of Southern Belle, and, and her family grew up in the South. But that Italian heritage always kind of stuck with us. You know, we're loud. We have our big noses and, and we just love everything Italian. And, um, you know, I grew up watching the league. It was so fortunate when I was little that Serie A was on and Rye. And, you know, you had very little outlets to, to watch the game, but that just happened to be one of them. And it was always Juventus or it was uh, Milan playing on the weekends. And that's kind of how I fell in love with the game and also stayed in touch with that heritage. You know, my dad kept in touch with a lot of our relatives over in Italy and I was able to get my Italian citizenship. So stayed a dual citizen. And, and it was always just, you know, it was always something that was... Um, was a part of our household growing up. We ate way too much pasta and, you know, started drinking red wine at an early age and uh, enjoying a lot of the perks of, of being a part of that, that culture. But um, my wife actually grew up part in Rome. So it's something that um, now is even more prevalent in our family. We're both Italian citizens and want to sort of keep that thread going and make sure that our, our kids are introduced to that culture as well. Now, my, my wife's is a much more authentic version of the Italian heritage than mine. Mine's the sort of not to... Uh, to appreciate it or minimize it, but sort of that more sort of watered down Italian American that you know, like she she can't stand that you know, like bolognese and like and and calling you know marinara sauce gravy and all these other weird Italian American things that that will drive actual Italians up the wall, like my wife. But it's uh, yeah, it's definitely something that's that's important to us. What did your parents do for a living? My dad worked for IBM for 40 years, and my mom was um, had the harder job of staying home and, and raising us, which uh, to this day, now that I have kids, I, I call her to, to apologize for any difficulties we gave her because that is, that is such a remarkable and courageous job to park, I'm sure, interests she had and aspirations she had to the side and, um, and spend the majority of her time making sure that we were taken care of and that we, we grew up to be good people that can contribute to this to this world and um you know, she she really is the uh, is the template that i use when i when i think about the the type of parent i want to be and um you know the other side the professional side of it is my dad worked so hard and traveled so much and missed so many amazing things that i'm sure he would have liked to have been there for you know part of me has my dad's work ethic and aspires to to be the best in his industry just as my dad uh, aspired to be the best in his and came very close but um but it almost and and my dad would agree with this not you know make sure that it's not a cautionary tale that that you didn't become the best in your industry at the cost of losing a little bit of the connectivity with your family what's the best lesson they taught you that you carry with you today um i think different lessons for for both of them my dad taught me sort of strength and there's a solution. You know, you can find a solution. And, um, you know, for instance, one time he, he, he uh, this is sort of a phrase that sticks with me. There's a difference between cash flow problems and money problems. For instance, you know, don't let the, the feeling of the situation skew the reality, which is, you know, you might feel like, oh man, how are we going to do this? But but understand that that there are people that are trying to to make things happen that have problems that you feel like are your problem, but they're not. And making sure that you have that perspective and feeling not tied up in you know the difference between feel and real. But my my dad was sort of the the ultimate pragmatist, and and I've I've learned a little bit of that from him. 
Now, too much of that is a very bad thing. So what I've learned from my mom is is to um, let let emotion come through and not be afraid to be vulnerable and not try and, and use logic to hide away real feeling and real emotion. So my, my parents are sort of the perfect combination of human being that I try to be on a daily basis that I, I have my struggles of probably leaning more towards my dad's side than my mom's and, and needing a little more vulnerability and a little more emotion in my life because I, I, I tend to, to fall into the pragmatist role a little too easily. Tell me about the moment when you first realized that you're a talented soccer player and that you might have an opportunity to make it into a career. Yeah, I mean, I think at a at a young age, there was definitely a, a love for it, for sure, starting around, you know, four or five years old. It really wasn't until I would say probably like 13 or 14 when I started getting more attention, whether it be from coaches or, you know, other parents. And, and it started to become more professional feeling where there was this track you could get on at that point. It wasn't just a game you were playing anymore. There was sort of college looming. At that point, there was a professional league here. And um, back then it was the Olympic development program. So you'd make your state team. So I'd play for Connecticut. And if you, if you made Connecticut, you'd have an opportunity to make the regional team of region one. And, and, and I made the national team at a very young age uh, at 15 in the first year year that I that I made all of those teams. So I made the state Connecticut state team for the first year, then made the regional team in that first year, then made the national. So that was kind of a big eye opener because before that you really had no measuring stick. You only had that sort of small pond measuring stick. And you know, it, it can feel like you you have a certain acumen and, and and excel at something when you're in this sort of small pond. But I knew better than to think that meant I was really good at this game. It was only until I got in that really large pond and got the recognition that I kind of looked around and said, well, we actually have something here. And it didn't matter if I was going to excel at it or not. It was something I loved and something I was going to keep doing. But I think that ended up being the justification to really lose myself in it. And um, it was the encouragement to continue to grind and, and maybe uh, let other things kind of fall away that I was splitting my time playing soccer with doing. For instance, I played a lot of other sports. And at that point, those all sort of faded away. And, um, and I really just became fanatical about getting to a certain level. Of course, I, it was my dream already at that age to, to do it for a living. But more, I, I didn't want to feel like there was any excuse for not becoming the best at it that I could be. And so I used to go down in the basement and duct tape a, a, a square and just spend hours and hours down there trying to perfect certain technique and I'm sure there's some some OCD <laughs> in there as well. OCD that still exists when it doesn't have an outlet like that can become a very dangerous thing. But yeah, I would say that was when I realized that, yeah, there's something here. And then you ended up enrolling at the University of Virginia, yeah. which is a powerhouse when it comes to soccer. What was the experience like there? It's interesting. I How I remember it is my first humbling experience because it was probably the hardest soccer environment I had been in up to that point for sure. But that being said, as a freshman, I was playing. I was a starter. So I remember it as a humble experience, but 
it was something that I took to right away. So that again was this compounding encouragement and sort of confidence that you need that I had made a huge leap from high school to one of the best, you know, division one programs in the country and hit the ground running almost kind of like in an attic sense that made me, it gave me a high. I mean, that, that, that made me hungry for the next high. I mean, that, that that's kind of one of the cautionary tales I, t- I talk when I go speak with kids and go back to my high school and club team and stuff as I talk about, there's nothing wrong with setting goals and, and aspiring to to reach a, a different level, but that was kind of the beginning of being out of touch with the moment. I mean, I, I was so hyper-focused on the next game, the next team, the next level that I never really sat and enjoyed the moment. I would say, you know, 75% of the time, I was I was so overcome with this feeling of an unfinished project that I felt like enjoyment was complacency. And I think that a certain level of that is a mistake. You know, complacency is a dangerous thing, but enjoying something and thinking, man, this is amazing that I've made this team, that I'm playing in this game, that I'm, you know, here in this moment. I think that's a very important part of being able to hold on to the love of the game because... Um, at a very young age, I kind of fell out of love with the game. And I, I think that's, that's the reason why. Yeah. And, and I think those characteristics are fairly similar across a lot of professionals or, or people who have played at that level. Did you set actual goals in terms of in two years, I want to be at X level or in five years, I want to be playing at such team in, in Europe? Or was it looking perhaps I want to make it into the MLS as my next step? Um, I mean, this is going to sound conceited, but I really only had one goal because this goal would have checked all the other boxes. It was to play in the 2002 World Cup. And I, at that point, this was kind of in high school and and in college that I started thinking about this. I just assumed I was going to be a professional soccer player. I mean, at that point, it was just, there's no way this isn't going to happen for me. You know, the track I was on, it was going to be my fault if it didn't happen, not some unlucky turn of events. So the only goal I really set during my career, which this kind of goes back to be careful how you how you motivate yourself, because if that's my only goal, then I failed in my career. And, um, you know, I feel that way sometimes. There are definitely times where I'm a little bit depressed about for sure how my career ended because it ended with a career ending injury at 28. But mostly because I had created this idea that I was only going to be successful if I played in that World Cup. And I got hurt in the January camp uh, before the run out to picking that that final team. And, um, you know, who knows if I was healthy, if I would have made the team anyway. But I can look at that moment and it definitely elicits this disappointment in me. Um, Did you mainly keep that to yourself or did you communicate it to other people? Yeah, Uh, My dad. My dad was the only one I talked to about that. What did he tell you? He he just said, "Always dream of that World Cup." Yeah, don't be don't be afraid to say it out loud. And you know, it was where it became difficult is when you know players and coaches around me, without me saying it, started saying that there was a chance that I was going to be there. You know, because they kind of said my goal out loud for me, which sort of took the pressure off of me having to say it. But I, you know, I knew that that was. That was what I was aiming for. And, you know, I definitely created a, now a scenario where I wasn't going to be happy unless it happened. And, you know, I, I can rehash it as much as I want, but, you know, it's hard It's hard to really come up with what you could have done differently because a lot of that obsession of making that World Cup team led to my successes. So, you know, it's so hard to do in hindsight 
try to think about what was the better move, what could you have done better. All I can do now is try and reach back to moments that I can still derive some happiness from that I sort of wasted in the moment. And uh, because they were wasted then doesn't mean they were wasted forever. I think what retirement brings out a lot of people is if they're able to reflect and understand why they're depressed, because majority of guys are, it's just natural when you live your whole life aspiring to be something and your identity so wrapped up in it to have it end one day. Uh, you know, it's, I call it the Peter Pan complex. All these professional players think they're going to do it forever and never really mentally prepare themselves. Maybe they professionally prepare themselves for what happens when they're done playing, but not mentally. I mean, that's what I've worked through for the last 10 years is, is trying to understand what my playing career meant to me and trying to find all of the happy moments that even if they were in defeat, that I should take from a career that was really fun and really special. How do those feelings typically express themselves among players? And do you guys, the retirees or the friends, do you guys talk about it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's historically been such a macho profession that, you know, no one talks about feelings. I mean, the quote unquote locker room is not the place to air all of those things. Fortunately, we're in a much different place now and, and it's become okay to talk about the mental health of, of players and it's okay to share emotions and feelings and, and be vulnerable. Um, doesn't mean you're not going to be a strong man or strong player and, um, you know, Landon Donovan's a good buddy of mine, and we've had a lot of these conversations. I mean, he, he's a very existential sort of character to begin with. John O'Brien's another one that, you know, he and I, our careers ended similarly in, in the fact that it was injury that took him away at a young age. So yeah, there's definitely guys that I, that I have these conversations with, a sort of support group of ex-athletes that either, in Landon's case, his career is still going, but who you would think have, have nothing to regret you know nothing left to prove got absolutely every last drip out of a playing career reached the absolute height of it but of course Landon has regrets and and every player will it doesn't matter if it's you know when Messi's done he's going to have regrets it's just part of the neuroses of of being a professional athlete and all the crazy nuance and also unrealistic atmosphere that that you're put into that going into the real world is very disjointing you know, we John O'Brien is actually going to school for his PhD in, in psychology and the sports psychology focus to try and be an outlet for a lot of these athletes and, and, and help build a, either a platform or a curriculum for, for current athletes to use through their clubs or for retirees to, to help them, almost a halfway house, to help them reacclimate to what it's like to not be Kyle Martino, the soccer player anymore, what it's like to just be Kyle Martino and, and how that fits in and how you fit into your new life and how you adjust and, and also the fact that you are still the same person in so many ways. So yeah, I mean, there, there's, there's a lot to talk about in that area and there's a lot of, uh, fortunately, I've got some good friends from the playing days to, to help work through those things. I assume, as, as you just mentioned, one of the things being that people know you as a somebody when you're a player, and I guess there's a certain rush that comes with that. How would you say that in your current role, because still very much being a public figure and, and seen on TV, and I guess you, you might even have your own little fan groups here and there, <laughs> has that kind of replaced those feelings, or is it comparable in, in any way? I mean, really, I'm, I'm more recognizable now than I was when I was playing. <laughs> 
you know, it's funny. I went back to go speak at my high school and, um, you know, the coach said, does anyone know who this is? And they all raised their hand and said, yeah, that's that's the Premier League guy, Kyle Martino. And and really none of them knew that I actually played the game. You know, it, yeah, it's like that was a humbling but hilarious moment. And, um, you know, that's not... It's it's going to sound like lip service, but that's not really, of course, what I was in for, in it for. Because you know, our our league, not one of the more watched, not one of the more celebrated. Um, you know, there were times where I was on a plane with the Columbus Crew, and people would lean over and say, "Crew, like the rowing." You know, you, you get you get humbled when you play Major League Soccer in those early days. Uh, it's different now with how much it's grown. But um, what I was in it for was how it made me feel, how, how I saw myself. Did I see myself as a good teammate, as a good player? And, um, you know, that's why it's so difficult, because if it was about being recognized and the rush that, that you got from whatever bit of fame or claim that came with that, then I'd be pretty happy right now because uh, I'm more recognized than I was as a player. The people are loving the Premier League coverage. So that should have made things really easy. But the reason that it didn't when I first retired is because my demons are very much my judgment of myself. And even if people think I'm doing a good job, I could think that I'm doing a terrible job. Or even if people think I'm doing a terrible job, the good part is I think that I'm doing a good job and I believe in myself. So, you know, there's sort of the, the good and the bad of having such a microscope on yourself and being being so hard on yourself. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Going back a little bit just on the playing career, you were drafted by the Columbus Crew in 2002, oh, man. I believe. It was a long time ago, yeah. And had a phenomenal start, became the Rookie of the Year. And I guess you're mostly associated with the Columbus Crew because you spent more time mm-hmm. there. How would you describe kind of that initial time of becoming a professional? Yeah, it was... Um it was it was an I've made it kind of feeling, you know, it was okay. It's so short lived, though, but it was all right, I'm here. You know, this, this was one of the biggest goals of, you know, when you're young was that idea. And that, you know, as I said before, it was sort of uh, for me, I assumed it was going to happen. But still, there was this brief moment of celebration in that preseason when not only that I had been drafted and that I signed a professional contract, but I noticed I belonged and, and it happened. I remember we were down in Florida, but at the Bulletary Sports Academy and playing in preseason against other other teams. And I and I remembered there being this this insecurity that creeped in of what happens if I get found out? Like, what happens if I'm not good enough for this? That was a real fear, but kind of going back to the, that difference between my mom and my dad, you know, the, the emotional me would have would have accepted and understood and tried to sort of investigate that feeling. But the logical me just said, "See how you do in training today." And in training, I was picking it up pretty quickly and felt to be one of one of the better guys out on the field and immediately just said, okay, back to 2002 World Cup. I mean, that's that's the focus. You're here now. Let's let's start to work on that. So um, 
you know, things in that first season to going back to that sort of weird borderline between cockiness and confidence. I wasn't starting right away. There was this guy who played for the Colombian national team, John Wilmar Perez, who was the starting attacking midfielder playing in front of John Harks or Brian Mazenoff. And um, I kind of really quickly thought I'm better than this guy. I should be out there and didn't really see the field in the first like six or seven games. And um, I remember Mike Clark, who was the captain at the time, came to me and said, you should be playing. You know, we all know it. And it was so important to hear that from him because I started to doubt myself and I started to think, this is where you get really insecure is when you're saying, am I not a good judge of myself? Am, am I not a good judge of what's actually a good player? And am I just seeing something that no one else is seeing? And that thought when it creeps in your head and grows can be such a cancer. I mean, it really can just just zap confidence. And you see it in professional players that, that are veterans. It's not anything that you can kind of get rid of permanently. But that was a big moment. And, you know, that that kind of gave me the the support that I needed to just get back on the training field and continue to prove it, prove it every every game and didn't give the coach zero reasons to not put me out there. And finally, in one game, he, he did. He started me, which was maybe a difficult decision as I look back in hindsight to, to rest a, a, a World Cup veteran, Colombian national team player for this young, skinny, long haired kid that hadn't played one professional game. But I started that game and started every game since in that season and, and got rookie of the year. So that was a big crossroad because I, I think even though I talk about this this obsession with the game and this work ethic, my mentality was, it was susceptible. It, 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 it was it was vulnerable. And I could be discouraged at that point because I, I had had so much built up and, and so much desire for it to work. It becomes easy in those moments. And this is why these, these guys who have these long, great careers are so impressive. It becomes easy in that moment to just give yourself a break and say, yeah, it's not going to happen. It's all right. It's not going to happen. You know, thank God Mike Clark was there that day to help chase that idea out of my head um, because it would have been a much different uh, career. So this is in the spring of 2002. When did you make your national team debut? It was that season. Yeah, it was was in, uh, no, I think 2001 was my first season. So yeah, that was in 2001, I believe. And then two, oh man, it's all, it's all blurry, but 2002, I remember my first game. It was against El Salvador at, R, at RFK. Tell me about the call up. It was crazy. I mean, I, I had known Bruce Arena through, I played with his son at University of Virginia, Kenny, who's a good friend of mine. And Bruce would come to games and um, had invited me, invited me a few times to come train with DC United when I was at University of Virginia. And so a call from him wasn't unfamiliar, but in this context was very unfamiliar. I got a call saying, you know, we're going to be calling you up for this, for this next game. And, and you get an email at that time from Pam Perkins at that, you know, Bruce kind of said, we're, we're looking at you. It wasn't a sure thing if I was going to get called up and you get an email from this wonderful woman who, co- who was the coordinator for the national team for a long time, Pam Perkins. And when you got that email, you, you were in and the email was, give me your, your ticket information where you're flying out of and all this sort of stuff. And when I got that email, I just couldn't believe it. I was, I was, um, you know, going to get to represent my country and play in an in, in international. And, um, that was, uh, I remember I, I didn't start and I was going through training that week it was just so crazy. It was so much fun. 
and uh, I didn't start and I came on, came on towards the end of that game. And, and I was just crazy nervous. I just remembered feeling like I was going to shake right out of my shoes. And I got in that game and I was just like, don't give the ball away the first time you get it. Whatever you do, just just do that. And the first time I got the ball, I, I sidestepped the guy and just passed a sort of 10 yard pass to Landon. And I remember Landon looking up at to, uh, up to me after that play, kind of giving me, I, I think he had seen how nervous I was when I came out and kind of giving me the you got this like nice, nice start to, to coming on. And, um, yeah, that was, uh, that was a really cool moment. I mean, that, that's what I talk about in, in the, in the moment. I, I, I don't think I really realized how big it was, how great it was, how, how much it would mean to me. But now I can go back and sort of a, a, a almost a, a time capsule of happiness, open it up and, and then see what it meant to me to, to be in that moment. Who were some of the players in that locker room that made the greatest impression on you? I mean, definitely Landon because, you know, he, he was younger than me. And, um, when we were young, he was always the star of his national team and I was of mine and our national teams. They had the, the great success at the under 17 World Cup. And because of our age group, we kind of missed our under 17 World Cup. We were kind of too young when it came the last time and now too old for that one. And we would always scrimmage them. And there was this huge rivalry and a jealousy. I was just jealous that he was so good and he, he was getting a chance to prove it and was, you know, such a star at that World Cup. But, but underneath jealousy in any circumstance is, is envy and is, and is, and is respect. And there was an incredible amount of respect for him. So he was definitely someone, even though I was older, I looked up to. Brian McBride, I played with for the Columbus crew at the time, and he was just incredible. He was one of the best professionals I ever played with in terms of not only how he worked on his game, but how willing he was to help others work on theirs. You know, Eddie Pope was was a huge figure at that point. He was someone who was so impressive and, and so helpful to new guys coming into the team. And uh, and then Clint Mathis was was just an intriguing one. I mean, he, he was kind of the the like, you know, tortured genius that I was more like the game that I wanted. I wanted a type of game that, that I could pull things off that weren't either quote unquote American or weren't expected of, of players of our ilk. And so he, he had a certain talent and a certain swagger that I aspired to. But actually a funny story about that is Bruce Arena after a US game one time came and sat next to me on the bus on the way uh, back to the hotel after the game. And I remember it so well, him turning to me and, and sort of quietly whispering, don't become Clint Mathis. And it was sort of a, I think he noticed that I was enamored with him and, and liked his irreverence in the way he played the game. And, you know, Bruce didn't want me to lose my creativity, but he didn't want me to be creative at the cost of, of sometimes being destructive. Did you get that right away or did he have no, to? No, I, I couldn't know. And when I was young, I was like, what's he talking about? Clint's the man. I mean, this guy's, this guy's incredible. But I, I would say above all of them was Claudio Reyna, who was one of the reasons I went to UVA. I kind of wanted to emulate everything that this guy did. And I just looked at his game and thought it was flawless. I just I his mastery of, of in-game situations and how calm he was, how good he was on the ball. I mean, he, he was someone that when I actually was in my first national team camp with him, that was one of those sort of kind of pinchy moments. What's something, and because you mentioned Landon, and I know you have Obviously, both Landon and Claudia, great appreciation. What's something that makes them so special that's not part of kind of the common knowledge? Um, I, I, I actually talked with Landon about this at length one time. I honestly think it's decision making. You know, Landon and Claudio, I could show you a dozen players that are more skillful than, than both of those guys that didn't have anywhere near the careers that they've had because they had this. And what I can't figure out is how, because they didn't have typical development 
upbringings is how they were able to see the game the way they saw it. And, and what I mean by that is is be able to make decisions and take pictures beforehand and have such a incredible feeling of where danger was, where opportunity was, and, and to have that in-game awareness and that decision-making. That's very atypical of I would what I would call definitely myself and a lot of talented American players that are reactive. I mean, they're just out there and because they're good on the ball, because they're good athletes, because they have a little bit of soccer IQ, they're able to pull off a good play, but Landon and Claudio are just this different ilk of player that that knew the right play and, and saw it before it kind of happened. And um, I mean that that's really the big difference between you know the U.S. doing well in World Cups and winning World Cups is is we need a team full of guys like that that have such attuned in-game senses that, that they they really aren't flustered and aren't being dragged around the field that they are very much in control of what's going on. Who's the first person that comes to mind if you tell me who the absolute craziest one was? <laughs> but I mean, it's easy. We were just talking about him, Clint Mathis. I mean, the guy was, um, he's one of those ones where you kind of like, you know, people talk about George Best. If George Best wasn't so destructive and thrill-seeking off of the field, would he have had a longer, bigger, better career? The argument to that is he, his career might have been because of that. I mean, his, his sort of, you know, his zest for life and his, you know, Paul Gascoigne could probably fall in the same category. They're all similar players, right? If you think about it, they all had this incredible ability to grab the game and entertain. And all of them were similar off the field. I mean, it's kind of just, just that was their personality. And and sometimes you see a person's personality come out a lot in the way they play. And that was the case with Clint, for sure. What would be a story that you tell at a bar? Oh, geez. Most of them, he wouldn't, he wouldn't really be happy that I, that I told him. But, um, I remember, <laughs> I remember one time, and this was when I first got into the national team. Maybe this is what led to Bruce's conversation with me on the bus that day, but he wanted me to go with him after training because he'd become really close friends with Wilmer Valderrama, the guy from that 70s show. And we were at a training camp in LA. He wanted me to go with him after training to pick up Wilmer's Maserati because Wilmer said he could use it while he was in town for the, for the national team camp. And so, um, I go with him to drive up the Hollywood Hills to go pick up this guy's car. And, and then the next day at training, instead of getting on the team bus as we normally do to go, to go to training, he convinced me to get in this Maserati with him to drive to practice. So he and I, and in hindsight, what the hell was I thinking? Drive up to the Home Depot Center and, and this, you know, TV stars Maserati and get out like it's no big deal. And of course, that was probably, you know, a couple of guys thought it was really cool, but I'm sure more of the guys thought like, look at these idiots. And that night, Clint asked me to come out with him. He was going to go out with Wilmer and I decided not to. I thought, you know, I've probably taken this further than, than I needed to as a sort of quote unquote rookie in the U.S. national team. And Clint had a huge blowout night at, you know, all these like A-list clubs and had like fallen over and broken his watch and like was out until 6 a.m. and just drove straight to, to training the next day. But here's the thing about Clint and, and other guys like Clint that really lived a little too much off of the field. 
he was able to come in and train at a high level the next day. And that that's where you really have to learn that you can't hang with some of these guys. And I learned it with some of uh, another one of my close friends, Frankie Hayduck. I tried to keep up with him one night and next day in training, he was running all over the place. And I, and I thought I was going to completely spontaneously combust on the field. So, you know, you say what you will about how crazy some of these guys are and how crazy they live their lives. But, um, man, were they exciting on the field? Yeah, I mean, it's a different different DNA altogether yeah. with some characters. Just briefly, you transferred from Columbus to the Galaxy. Uh, had a few uh, good seasons there. Did you ever have the opportunity or, or was there, since you were you know, part of the national team, was there ever talk about clubs in Europe? Yeah, when I was actually in um, high school before I went pro, uh, I was approached by Benfica to not come back for my second year at UVA and uh, to sign a contract with them. We had had a youth national team tournament in Toulon with the U.S. team, and I had done really well. And, um, you know, that's one of those, again, regrets of I decided not to do it and go back to uh, to college. Um, that was my first opportunity. The next one came after I had gotten my Italian citizenship, it had opened up a lot of doors to being able to go easily to uh, to Europe and play. And I had gone over after a really bad injury. I had torn my hip um, for the first time and it had coincided with my MLS contract expiring. And instead of signing a new MLS deal, I decided I was going to go try to, um, there were a couple clubs interested, go, go abroad and, and go on trials. And um, I the timing of my injury was terrible where it was going to take me a lot of the off season to get healthy enough to make it for the next season. But then I was going to miss my window of going and trialing, trialing for these teams. And if it didn't work out, coming back and playing in MLS. So I went over before I was entirely fit and ready, but went to Holland first to NEC Nijmegen and um, had a great trial there and um, found out afterwards that I was brought in because their attacking midfielder was was kind of holding them ransom for a new contract, and they were worried he was going to leave. And so I came in, performed well, and they kind of dragged me along, dragged me along until that guy signed a new deal, and I was immediately asked, you know, thank you, but no thank you. You know, you, you, can, you can move on. Um, and I went to Leeds at that point. And again, had a had a really good start where they put me with the reserves first, performed really well in the first reserve training. Then they put me in with the first team for a week. Were they in the They were in the championship at that yeah. point. And then this this is the crazy thing about trials. They asked and started negotiations with, with my agent at the time. And you know Who was your agent? At the time then it was um was uh Lyle Yorks, but but it was a European guy over there sort of acting on behalf of Lyle Yorks. And um, it looked like I was going to sign sign a contract, and they wanted me to play in a reserve game as a sort of a, a last look. And it was Dennis Wise and Gus Poyet. They were the coaches, and they wanted me to play in this reserve game. I think it was against Sheffield, and um, it was Sheffield United, and it was a side rain. Wind, like you wouldn't believe, pouring down rain. And I play in this game that, you know, if I think back, didn't perform poorly, but what I mean, no one would want to watch this game again if they were paid. And based on, you know, that game didn't move forward with, I mean, it's it's sort of the margins of that, or that's small and and, and the decisions that quick where that was it. And if I stayed any longer, I was going to miss my opportunity to go back and sign with the LA Galaxy. And they had just announced David Beckham was coming. So I thought to myself, this is kind of a once in a lifetime experience to go play with a player of his caliber. You know, who knows? I could hang out here and keep going through trials and eventually find a team. But, um, you know, at that point, I, I, I was beaten up. I had 
come back to play way or way too early. So I needed actually to go back and rehab more and decided, uh, you know, it's not going to happen and went back and signed with the galaxy and started up again with them. What would be the main things that stood out in the European game? Although obviously Holland and England are, are vastly different, yeah. but what would be like a couple of things you would well, I mean, pick for, from? For, for the championship, it's probably a good thing that it, that it didn't pan out because what, what stood out immediately was how physical and direct it was. I mean, it just wasn't the game that I excelled at and wasn't the game actually I really wanted to be playing. And um, it was cold. It was wet. People didn't like you. Uh, you know, they, they, I've talked with actually a couple of guys that have gone over there either on trials or Landon told me this about going over to Byron Leverkusen. It sounds crazy and it sounds paranoid, but it's true. They won't pass to you. You'll go over there, you're on trial, and you're basically trying to take one of these guys' positions. So they will, as much as possible, try to make you not look good. And um, it was crazy. I, I, you know, guys had warned me about it, but seeing it in the flesh, it was nuts to see it. Um, Holland was, was, I wish that one worked out because it was a beautiful kind of that idea of total football. I mean, it was ball on the ground, building up from the back. It was very... Wasn't as physical, wasn't as fast, but it was very cerebral. It was a, it was a great tactical game, and um, that was definitely something that you know I don't regret the championship opportunity not working out, but I do regret not working out in Holland because I think I really would have had a good time there. Yeah, and it's usually a great stepping stone to the next yeah. level, even within the European yeah. game. Obviously, your career ended at a very young, 28 years old. But what was that moment like and how long did it take to actually finally make that decision? So the decision was kind of made for me to a certain extent where my injury had gotten to the point where the doctors had kind of advised me, listen, it's your decision, but our professional opinion is you, you need to stop playing. Um, and it was Dr. Mandelbaum, the, the U.S. doctor, and I sat in this office and once I realized that I was never going to be the player I'd set out to be at that point and really took or took the temperature of what how much I was enjoying the game and at that point I wasn't at all I just didn't love it anymore and and I was scared that if I kept playing I was never going to love it again so it was kind of like when you're in a bad relationship and you know you need to break up in order to to maintain respect and love for each other that's kind of what it was and I sat in his office and he took out a recorder for insurance purposes and we recorded uh, his professional opinion that I was going to stop playing and that I decided to retire from the game. And that was one of the only times in my life I just broke down and started crying. And and that's a bigger problem than my career ending is that I've only cried once that I can remember. But I was devastated. And, and sometimes I think maybe it wasn't as much that I was devastated as that it was tears of, of relief that I didn't have to try and, and prove anything anymore didn't have to try and battle to get to a point that it didn't look like I was going to make it to. It was kind of a relief that that was over because I was really tormenting myself and 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 finding ways to blame myself and judge myself for not getting to the height that that were expected of me that I expected of myself. And so um that was a hard moment and it led to, you know, many years and even still today it pops up into my head from time to time of really working through what what that meant to me and um and letting out emotion and and mourning the loss of something really special to me which was a playing career that I worked so hard for and I assume after that you probably wanted to get as far away as possible oh, yeah. from from the game yeah 
Like what was the first real job you got after that? Yeah, so I, I um, wanted nothing to do with the game. I, almost like keep an alcoholic out of out of a bar. I, I just knew that it was dangerous for me to be around the game. And so I went and worked in the most natural of transitions after professional athletics. I worked in finance and went and worked on Wall Street in 2008, right before the financial crisis, which by the way, I did not, I did not cause. Let's just go on record. I did not cause the financial <laughs> crisis, but I, maybe how, I contributed. How did you get in there? Um, the, one of the partners of the firm was a soccer fan and just, you know, cashed in and what was left of my, of my career notoriety and, um, Went and started working there. And actually, there were aspects of it that I really loved because it was competitive. It, it felt like a team. It felt similar to what I was doing f- before, although sort of uh, unrecognizable and, and, and easily justified as not professional athletics or athletics, but had so many of the, the same qualities that I, that I really enjoyed and, you know, became intoxicated with again. What was your, um, I was, position? It, it was, uh, I was a wealth, uh, I was what was called an RM, a relationship manager at a wealth advisory firm. So basically a big shop that does financial planning and insurance and estate planning for high net worth individuals. I was sort of a, um, almost like a guy that fished and went out to either get new clients or maintain relationships with current clients. And it was fun. I, I learned a tremendous amount about the industry, but more about myself in that time. But also, it was when I started to dabble in doing a little bit of commentary. ESPN had asked me since I was living in the New York area to call a couple games when they needed a fill-in. And um, you know, if I wasn't working in finance and working in in such a different world, so far away from the sport, I don't know if I would have found it again. It was it was because I wasn't. It's kind of like that relationship thing of you'll find love when you're not looking for it. You know, I fell in love with the game again because I wasn't desperate to. I kind of let it go and. It was when the pressure was off that I really started to let that love grow and that light sort of increased inside me that, um, that, you know, was kind of that, that first love that I'd found way back when, when I was four or five watching, you know, the Italian league. And, uh, that's when I knew everything was going to be all right. That, that, you know, I didn't know yet at that point that I was going to be a pundit, that it was going to work out, but I just knew, you know, I can, I can love this game again and I may never have a professional relationship with it, but it's, you know, sort of good to see you again. In your role today, what are the worst parts about the job beyond travels that we already kind of touched on? Yeah, I think the worst parts are definitely, um, you know, it's more of an annoying part than, you know, it being something that's bad about the game is or the profession is everyone's an expert, you know, and having to deal with uh, everyone's sort of insecurity, especially when you're the only American covering the game, about you being able to get this position and you being able to commentate on what they think is their league and their game. You know, a lot of the, the sort of mindless vitriol that gets hurled in your direction when you do this job. But, you know, I, I would take a thousand times more of it if it meant I could continue to do this job. So it's something that I, you know, all of us that that work in this industry that are public figures have accepted that is part of this job. Is there any uh, rivalry between you and your colleagues or even other people, say, who are working for other channels? Because you all have big egos, obviously. Yeah. And, and yeah, you yeah. Know, it's, it's a lot about individual career and, and you guys managing your own brand in a way. Yeah, I mean, definitely there's rivalry. Uh, you know, it's it's a very healthy one. You know, my peers that are in you know the sports or, you know, Taylor Twellman or Alexi Lawless or some of the other guys that, that are doing such a great job right now. I, yeah, of course, I want to be better than them. But not at the cost of them having great careers as well. You know, it's not a Machiavellian sort of feeling. It's very healthy rivalry where I'm good friends with both those guys. And, and, and we have lots of fun banter. And I, I chat with them online and offline all the time. 
But of course, I, you know, I, I don't get into anything, which kind of is part of my crazy personality. I don't get into anything without a desire to be the best at it. So, you know, I, I every day am, am trying to find an edge and an angle to be, uh, you know, the best definitely in, in terms of that healthy rivalry, but more importantly, in the rivalry I have with myself to improve on any performances that I've done in the past. And this is, I guess, a bit of an outlier. There hasn't been a whole lot reported on it, but I did read something about you becoming, I guess, an investor, maybe not the owner, but mm -hmm. investor with, with Real Mallorca yeah, yeah. in the Spanish uh, Segunda. Yeah. How did that come about? <laughs> yeah, it was, it's funny. So, um, Steve Nash is a very close friend of mine and, um, our friendship was built on a shared love of this game and, um, We always talked about different things to do together, and we had, had gotten involved in other business projects on the side, you know, just almost jokingly had dreamed about and talked about the potential of owning a team one day. And, and one day Steve called me with a possibility, and he said, listen, um, you know, Robert Sarver, the head, the owner of The Sons, has approached me about helping him to put together a project to, to go own a soccer team. And so... You know, Steve asked if myself and, and Stu Holden, another good friend of ours uh, in L.A., who we play soccer together down by the beach and uh, have become really close friends, you know, if we would join him in, in that venture. And, um, you know, it took all but 30 seconds to think whether or not we wanted to do so. And then the process of finding a team and, and doing it took place. We took a shot at Levante and then weren't able to have our offer accepted there. And Mallorca was the second team we went for. And... Uh, It's so incredible to think after all of this, you know, I've been through and, you know, in this discussion with you, the journey of, of what the sport has meant to me and what I've been involved in. If you would have told me when I started it, you know, as a little kid right down the street, if I could be even a tiny percentage owner in one of these great clubs an amazing league with an opportunity to help bring them back up to La Liga where they belong, I would have thought you were crazy. So, um... You know, it's like fantasy manager. Our fantasy has become real life. And um, it's amazing to be involved in the process of uh, understanding how a football club works and how it's run. But more importantly, just being a, a little part of trying to, uh, to help it succeed. Do you get like full insight into everything that's yeah. happening at the club? Yeah, yeah. So I, I, uh, I had a list of all of our uh, the, the current players and salaries and who we're going for, what they're going to cost, what we're paying our coach, who, who's our coach, how, how he's doing, the you know how how many tickets we've sold. What I, it's it's I've got all the uh, all the info and and more than I could ever sift through to understand. But um, it, it's it's been a really amazing experience to have the hood lifted to. See see how one of these things run and um you know it's an incredible club with an amazing history and uh it would just be such an incredible accomplishment and and feather and all of our caps to to in a small partake in helping this club get back to greatness how would you describe yourself as a team owner are you like the southern <laughs> italian type who fires the coach every few no, months I, or? I'm, i'm i'm the level-headed one in the group no i mean everyone our opinions are Are, are more for consultation and, and support for the people that are making the, the real decisions. We're, we're not here with fingers on any buttons. Uh, and it's a good thing we're not because we're, we're just a bunch of guys that love the game that, you know, from, from all the way over here couldn't fully ever understand what that club means to its fans and, and what really will make it work. We're just trying our best to add some soccer voices and soccer minds to a conversation that's trying to, uh, to accomplish something pretty special with a great club. Where are they in the league right at the moment? 
Uh, we just got out of the relegation zone in the Segunda Division, and, and it took the last game of last season to uh, to survive. So it's it's a long, long project that has its challenges, but um, we're optimistic that we can um, make our way up the table this season. And uh, I would say survival is definitely the goal. It's promotion is maybe a little bit a little bit too early to be talking promotion to La Liga this season. We're getting to the end here. I'm just going to shoot a set of rapid-fire questions. Favorite team? Barcelona. The biggest moment in your playing career? Uh, My first international goal. In your post-career? My daughter being born. The best player you played with? Claudio Reyna. The best player you've played against? Uh, Pirlo. Best team? We played the Barcelona Reserves. Oh my God, were they good? What team was that with? I have to look back because I'm sure I'm sure. Yeah, but you were with. Oh, the I was Yale- with Columbus Crew, but it had to have been a lot of the guys that have been in the first team over the last, you know, five years. A recommendation to somebody who wants to get into your position: do the reps. Doesn't matter what game. Just if you want to be a commentator, you want to be a coach, you want to be whatever it is. Find someone that'll let you do it and do it as much as you can. One piece of advice to your 20 year old self. Look up and notice the day. Who's the most well-known soccer contact in your phone? Probably Beckham. Give me three people in the soccer world, past or present. Let's assume language is not a barrier. Mm -hmm. You get to take them for dinner. Who are those three? George Best. Paul Gascoigne. There's going to be a lot lot of hilarious stories at this this dinner table. And um, Maradona. Let's just make it crazy. Where would you take them? Somewhere they don't serve alcohol. I would take them to. Uh, I would take them to this. The, my buddy's Italian restaurant in, in Brooklyn. He's got this place, uh, Lilia, that's absolutely remarkable for some some really really good Italian food. How can people follow you uh, on Twitter, Kyle Martino at, at, at Kyle Martino on Twitter, and that that's really the, my only my only social media. I can. I'm already obsessed with my phone enough as it is. I don't. I don't need any other avenues to connect with the world. So that's the best one. Do you have anything you would like to recommend? TED Talks. I've been listening to TED Talks recently. I definitely tune into those, and, and they'll talk about things you never even thought you were interested in. Is there any particular favorites? Um, yeah, there was a TED talk about the mathematics of love that was so crazy and amazing about this this woman who's an economist trying to figure out if she could break the the algorithm on how to find love. It was it was fascinating. Last one. Who do you think I should interview next on this pod? Tim Howard. I think he's got he's got a lot of interesting things to to talk about in life and in the game for sure. Maybe you know somebody who can point me in that direction. Yeah, we can see what we can do. <laughs> Sounds good. Kyle, thank you so much. Thanks, uh, man. This is I'm, fun. I'm very much appreciated. Thanks for the coffee, the invitation to your home. Um, wish you the best of luck, obviously, first and foremost with family, but then also in your role and, and look forward to uh, keep our eyes open for you. All right. Thanks for the chat, man. Thanks. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please subscribe on iTunes, write a review, tell your friend about it. I would truly appreciate it as we grow this podcast one listener at a time. If you have any feedback or ideas, feel free to send me an email 
at Sebastian at coffeeandfootball.com. You can also link up with me via Twitter. The handle is at coffeesfootball. Stay tuned for next episode. It will be another amazing one. Thanks again and have an amazing week. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply.